We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 324 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 27, 2022, the Friday before Memorial Day weekend. If you are supposed to work on this Friday, the expectation is that you will get no work done, okay? Zero work done, and that's okay, all right? There are some work days on which you are excused from getting actual work done at work. Uh, The Friday before Memorial Day weekend is one of those days. Memorial Day weekend really is a two-pronged weekend because on the one hand, of course, Memorial Day is meant to honor those in our military who have died serving our country. I mean, it is a solemn holiday, right? Uh, And let me say right now, a salute, a thank you to all of those who have died serving our country. But of course, Memorial Day weekend also is the unofficial start of summer, right? The weather finally is warm. You have baseball, you have the NBA playoffs, you have the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, You many years have a big fight or fights on Memorial Day weekend. There have been a number of major UFC fights and boxing matches on Memorial Day weekends over the years, so it's okay to enjoy yourself on this Memorial Day weekend. We could all use a little enjoyment with everything going on in our world right now. Now, speaking of enjoying yourself, guess who apparently was really enjoying himself on Twitter on Thursday? The defensive coordinator of our commanders, Jack Del Rio. Jack Del Rio's tweets have been a topic in the past for a variety of reasons, but there were two tweets from Jack on Thursday that really stood out. One was him bizarrely responding to a tweet from the official Twitter account of the Wizards announcing the hiring of Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach. The tweet was from July 17th, 2021 as, no, you're not crazy. The Wizards didn't just hire Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach. The Wizards hired Wes Jr. as head coach last summer. And I don't know if Jack got confused and thought that the Wizards had just hired Wes Jr. I don't know if Jack just felt like he needed to congratulate Wes Jr. 10 months later on getting the job of Wizards head coach. But Jack Del Rio on Thursday night tweeted, quote, Congrats, Wes. Wishing you the best. End quote. Uh, Okay. Kind of random. Kind of late, but that's fine. Uh, However, the best tweet from Jack Del Rio on Thursday by far came on Thursday evening. Uh, Someone tweeted at Jack, Ron Rivera, and Jason Wright the following. Quote, I blame at Riverboat Ron HC, that is the official Twitter handle for Ron Rivera, at Coach Del Rio, the official Twitter handle for Jack Del Rio. And of course, the snake, at who is Jay Wright, the official Twitter handle for Jason Wright. For all this pain drama, as in Duran pain, 
We draft a stud back in 2018, and you all have been playing games the last two seasons. Karma gonna bite when he goes within the division. Hashtag HTTR, end quote. So this is someone tweeting at Jack Del Rio, Ron Rivera, and Jason Wright upset at what's going on with Deron Payne right now. By the way, more on that coming up in just a bit. Well, Jack responded. Uh, Jack, in a quote-tweet response, tweeted, quote, Bite these. End quote. Bite. B-I-T-E. D's. D-E-E-Z. As, <laughs> as in bite these nuts. As in consume my testicles. <laughs> as in your opinion doesn't matter. As in you are a buffoon. Now look, normally I'm not a fan of players, let alone coaches on my teams, responding to trolls on Twitter. I mean, you as a big time person in pro sports should not care what someone with like six followers on Twitter says. And of course, the person who trolled Jack on Twitter, that person in his Twitter profile has has hashtag Jesus. You can look this up, okay? This troll on Twitter has hashtag Jesus. Look at me. I love Jesus. Uh, Because of course, hey, everyone knows that Jesus told us to troll people on Twitter. So normally, I'm not a fan of players, let alone coaches, on my teams responding to trolls on Twitter. That's not a great look. It's an overly sensitive look. To me, you should be above that. But, but, what Jack wrote, again, bite D's, (laughs) was so over the top and was so out of character for Jack Del Rio, right? I mean, he like says nothing at his press conferences. And to me, this was like so inappropriate too that it was funny. I have to say, I laughed when I saw that. So I'm not mad at Jack Del Rio for tweeting what he tweeted. I mean, was that the greatest look ever? No, but the tweet was funny and it made me laugh. And you know what? We could all use a good laugh right now. So bite D's. Thank you, Jack Del Rio. Well, certain members of the Virginia State Senate right now are telling Dan Snyder to bite D's. Chap Peterson isn't the only Virginia State Senator who is not on board with a Virginia Stadium funding plan for the Commanders. We learned of a few more on Thursday. Uh, The last few days in this Commander Stadium saga have been nuts. Not these nuts, but just nuts. Uh, And so coming up on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast is the person who has covered the Virginia aspect of the Commander Stadium situation better than anyone else has. Commander's insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. In-depth, high-level talk about what the heck is going on with the Commander Stadium potentially being in Virginia. You know, Michael on Thursday morning broke news in reporting that the Commanders have worked up plans for a stadium in Loudoun County on the Silver Line of the Metro. All kinds of twists and turns in the Commander Stadium saga this week. So we'll get into everything that's going on, including what is looming. This Wednesday, June 1st, the deadline by which the Virginia State Senate needs to pass a Commander Stadium funding plan if one is going to be approved this year. Uh, Also, next segment, in fact, I'll address the conclusion of a not-so-banner week one of OTA practices for the Commanders this offseason in terms of attendance, although how big of a deal this is and what exactly this means can be debated, but per reports, Terry McLaurin, Chase Young, and Montez Sweat missed the entire week, and Deron Payne opted out for some of the week. Uh, Also, next segment, want to highlight some key changes to rules for NFL rosters this coming season, and I'll talk Nationals, uh, as they have themselves a winning streak for the first time in nearly a month. The Nats on Thursday night won their second consecutive game 7-3 over the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park. By the way, no show on Monday, Memorial Day, unless something big happens over the next few days. There's always that caveat, the emergency pod caveat, but barring something big, no show for Monday, and then I'll be back with a show on Tuesday. Uh, Also, a thank you to you, this podcast, as of late night on Thursday night, number 
39 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. That is a credit to you, so thank you. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback on everything going on in the Commander Stadium saga. Interestingly, I have received a good bit of positive feedback regarding the Commander's next stadium potentially being in Woodbridge, Virginia. Email from Brent Anderson in Northeast D.C. Writes Brent, I finally like a bit of news out of Commanderland. I saw the rumblings about the potential landing spot in Woodbridge and the renderings for possible stadiums that were going around. This got me thinking. I think most people would agree that our storied Redskins, now Commanders, became the perennial losers we know now sometime during the early to mid-1990s. It might have been a combination of many factors, but the exact cause for our suckdom is debatable. Most folks will point straight at Danny Boy, who purchased the team in 1999. I agree he is not without blame. Some folks will point to free agency in 1993 and the salary cap in 1994. I agree we've never been consistently good during this era. Me, I'd point straight to 1996 when FedEx Field broke ground. We decided to take one of the best franchises and fan bases in the NFL, out of the capital of the United States, and rush construction inexpensively to the cheapest plot of land that could be found inside the Beltway. The case for Woodbridge. The first thing I keep hearing about is how far Woodbridge is from D.C. There are only eight games per season. Uh, Well, eight or nine, depending on the season. But I get you, Brent. Continues, Brent. An hour's drive for something worth seeing isn't much to ask. It takes that long to get into and out of the parking lot in Landover. Prince William County is one of the fastest growing counties in the D.C. area. The commanders could actually grow their brand there with the anticipated growth of the area. There might even be a few establishments around the place to make a day of it. The majority of fans the Redskins have had are from suburban areas like Woodbridge. Many folks in D.C. proper either aren't native to here and have their own team or simply aren't interested for one reason or another, possibly thanks to our suckdom. Northern Virginia is much more business-friendly than D.C. and Maryland. There are 15 Fortune 500 companies right there for the team to partner with. There are four in D.C. and Maryland combined. Most of the players for the team already choose to live in Virginia. The Redskins fly in and out of Dulles. What was the business case for Landover to start with? Woodbridge is a good chance to start anew and wipe Raljon back off the map. I think the new team name stinks, but this Woodbridge news is the first sign I've seen of some real positive change. Change, I'll drive an hour plus four. Thank you for the email, Brent. I tell you, you make a number of very good points. That was a very smart email. And for all of the good that Jack Kent Cook did as Redskins owner, man, did he leave the team and all of us with a clunker of a stadium, and yes, what Jack called Raljon, Maryland, and with a clunker of an ownership situation, right? And not just leaving the skins to his son, John Ken Cook. The legacy of Jack Kent Cook as Redskins owner is harmed by these two things, what eventually became known as FedEx Field, and him not leaving the team to his son, John Ken Cook, resulting, of course, in Dan Snyder buying the team. Now, that said, I have to say, It's hard to ever be that mad at Jack Kent Cook, okay? It's hard to ever be that mad at JKC because Jack Kent Cook is one of the great characters in Washington, D.C. sports history. And of course, framing that character are three Super Bowl championships in 10 years, four NFC championships in 10 years. Jack Kent Cook had a way with words like few people in D.C. sports ever had. Take a listen to this. I was watching some Jack Kent Cook stuff on YouTube on Thursday afternoon. Jack Kent Cook, after the Redskins win over the Miami Dolphins at the Rose Bowl in Super Bowl 17, January 1983, you will hear Mike Adamley of NBC and then JKC. 
Coach Joe Gibbs, congratulations, owner Jack Ken Cook. I know you have one thing to say to the Redskins fans. It's simply this, that this magnificent team of yours has the privilege of playing for what, in my opinion, are the finest fans, not just in America, but on the face of this earth. Thank you, you marvelous Washington fans. <laughs> How about that, man? I mean, just hearing the voice of Jack Ken Cook makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside if you at any point in your life experienced the glory days of the Redskins. And I only experienced the back half of the glory days of the Redskins. I did not become a cognizant sports fan until 1987, but I remember Jack Kent Cook and the voice, the delivery, the diction. I mean, that was proper English. That was a king's English that Jack Kent Cook spoke. Uh, classic stuff. Email from Kevin Zanto on the Commander Stadium saga, writes Kevin, I'm a huge fan of the show. Been a listener since your morning blitz days back in 2017. And I must say, thank you for making the world go round with your show and everything that you do. No other way I'd rather start my morning. Very nice of you to write that, Kevin. I appreciate that. Continues, Kevin. On the topic of the new stadium possibly being in Woodbridge, Virginia, I find it extremely annoying with everyone in the D.C., Maryland area being upset that the new stadium could possibly be only 25 minutes away from the Capitol. Oh my God, the horror. I'm originally from Fairfax, Virginia. However, I've lived in Phoenix, Arizona since I was 12. I'm 28 years old now and have still rooted for the team since I could remember. Being a lifelong fan of a team that's across the across can be tough. I've only ever seen the team play a few times. And last year's home opener against the Chargers was the first time that I ever attended a game at FedEx Field. Was the stadium a dump? Yeah, but my two best friends and I flew out there and had a great time. My point is that I can't believe that people are upset that the stadium could possibly only be an hour from the D.C. area. Try 2,500 miles instead and tell me how that goes. Some people just don't get it, Al. Thanks so much for what you do and keep up the great work, sir. Uh, thank you for the email, Kevin. Good perspective from you, man. Uh, so two things. The main complaints about the Woodbridge site regarding travel are, number one, there being no public transportation to Woodbridge. Metro doesn't go to Woodbridge. And number two, traffic going to Woodbridge can be horrendous, okay? That stretch of I-95 can be a nightmare. However, there are traffic problems basically everywhere in the Washington, D.C. area. And as I have said, there is this elitist attitude from people who live where I live, okay? Uh, I am amongst these people in Washington, D.C., slash Montgomery County, Maryland, slash PG County, Maryland. Uh, this attitude is toward Prince William County, especially toward Woodbridge and Dumfries. And it really is funny to me because you would think that Woodbridge and especially Dumfries are third world countries with how Woodbridge and especially Dumfries get talked about by the immediate D.C. area elitists, uh, of which I am a part, okay? I readily admit that. And when it comes to distance, I laugh at that too, because distance is relative. Woodbridge, Virginia is far away if you live, wait for it, far away from Woodbridge, Virginia. But if you live in Fairfax County, Virginia, or in Loudoun County, Virginia, or in Prince William County, Virginia, or in Southern Virginia, then Woodbridge, Virginia isn't so bad. I mean, all of this is a matter of perspective, and I say this as someone who lives far away from Woodbridge, Virginia. I get it, okay? You know, we have friends and family who live in Fairfax County, Virginia, and Loudoun County, Virginia, and just going out there can be brutal. We have to take I-66, trust me, I would rather someone take a baseball bat to my knees than drive on I-66. That is the road of the devil, okay? That is the road of Satan, man, I-66. Like, there is never not traffic on 66. Anyone who lives in this area understands that. Uh, but that is our area, you know, the Washington, D.C. area. Lots of traffic basically everywhere. However, at the end of the day, this is a great area. Uh, though it also is an expensive area. And so buying a home in the D.C. area is tricky. And so if you're looking to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you gotta get with Kellen Hunt. 
Visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. The competition for homes in the D.C. area right now is extreme. High demand coupled with low inventory. You know how that goes. And so homes in the D.C. area are going under contract quickly after those homes are listed. And when I say the D.C. area, I mean in a variety of places in the D.C. area. Maryland, Virginia, Washington, D.C. The real estate market throughout this area is hot. How do you make sure that you get the home that you want and deserve. What's the right strategy? This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. Kellen Hunt has a mastery of the Washington, D.C. area real estate market, but you know he's not just some know-it-all. He is here for you. He is here to listen to you, to serve you, to hear what you want, and then do what you want. He will determine the best way of going about getting you what you want. If you're wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a smart realtor to ensure that your offer is the offer that wins. Put Kellen Hunt to work for you. His website says it all. Closeitwithkell.com. Kellen Hunt is a closer. He's 1990 Dennis Eckersley. And Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you the buyer get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing and he wants to help. So visit Closeitwithkell.com. Dot com. That's close it with Kel, K-E-L-L dot com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit CloseItWithKell.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. All right, so the Commanders on Thursday concluded their first batch of OTA practices this offseason. This set of OTA practices lasted for four days, Monday through Thursday. The Commanders have two more sets of OTA practices this offseason, May 31st through June 2nd and June 6th through the 8th. Uh, then we get the mandatory minicamp, June 14th through the 16th. Uh, then we get about a six-week break, and then comes 2022 Commander's Training Camp. Uh, OTA practices, of course, are voluntary, uh, but the head coach of the Commanders, Rod Rivera, and the defensive coordinator of the Commanders, Jack Del Rio, each in his own way, has made it clear that he wants players attending OTAs. Well, what has become clear is that the Commanders aren't getting attendance at OTAs so far this offseason. The Commander's number one receiver, Terry McLaurin, isn't participating in OTAs this offseason due to his contract extension talks. Uh, Terry, per Commander's insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post, hasn't participated in OTAs at all since the 2022 NFL Draft, which concluded on April 30th. Uh, The Commander's Top two edge defenders, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, did not attend OTA practices this week. That's according to Commander's Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic. He reported this on Thursday. Uh, Chase has been in Colorado rehabbing his right knee of having suffered a torn right ACL in the win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field this past November 14th. We're not sure what's up with Montez. Ron, during his post-OTA practice press conference on Tuesday morning, said that Montez was dealing with a personal thing and was expected to be in attendance on Wednesday. Uh, According to Ben, Montez was not in attendance on Wednesday or Thursday. And then there's a situation with Deron Payne, uh, the commander's number two interior defensive lineman. So Ben Standing on Tuesday evening reported that Deron on Tuesday morning had, quote, walked off the practice field and declined to participate in team drills due to lagging contract talks, end quote. Duran on Wednesday afternoon tweeted, quote, if y'all think I walked out of practice, you goofy, we always working, end quote. And near the end of Duran's tweet was the hashtag most hated. But then Ben Standing on Thursday morning reported that Duran was not at the commander's OTA practice on Thursday. Uh, I bring all of this up to note something. And that is that in this commander's offseason, prior to which Ron Rivera made a big deal about wanting players to attend OTAs, 
And in this commander's offseason, that is prior to a commander's season, that Ron has said it needs to be a step forward season for the team, the team is missing some of its top players from these OTA practices. I mean, again, the commander's number one receiver, Terry McLaurin, the commander's top two edge defenders, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, the commander's number two interior defensive lineman, Deron Payne. And with each guy, there are reasons for him having not attended OTA practices so far. And perhaps with each guy, there are very understandable reasons for him having not attended commander's OTA practices so far. Again, OTA practices are voluntary. But as I have said, just because something is voluntary doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, okay? There's a difference between being allowed not to do something and it being that you shouldn't do that something. And I'm not bringing this stuff up to pass judgment on these guys because I do think that there is at least some gray area with each guy's situation. I mean, I get why Terry McLaurin is doing what he's doing. I get why Deron Payne is doing what he's doing. If, in fact, he's doing what we think he's doing. Again, he has denied what Ben Standig has reported. Uh, The Chase Young and Montez Sweat situations, I don't know. I mean, those two guys were the two prominent no-shows for Washington's OTA practices last offseason. Chase did not attend any of Washington's 2021 OTA practices. Montez attended the second and final week of Washington's 2021 OTA practices. We know that Chase is coming off a torn right ACL. We know that Montez's brother, Anthony Sweat, uh, was killed in a shooting this past December 28th in Henrico County, Virginia. Uh, This was a real tragedy. Anthony Sweat was just 27 years old. So who knows what this personal thing that Ron Rivera said that Montez was dealing with was. However, Chase and Montez were the two prominent no-shows for Washington's OTA practices last offseason. Each guy had a disappointing 2021 season to at least some extent, it's not unreasonable to wonder why those guys aren't in attendance for these OTA practices. I mean, just looking at attendance at the first week of the Commander's 2022 OTA practices, it doesn't look great that in this offseason, prior to which Ron Rivera made a big deal about wanting players to attend OTAs, and in this offseason, that is prior to a season that Ron has said needs to be a step forward season for the Commanders, the team is missing some of its top players from these OTA practices. Like, if you just look at things from that perspective, this isn't a great look. And yes, plenty of players on other NFL teams skip OTA practices, but the Commanders aren't like most other NFL teams for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm very interested to see what attendance for week two of Commander's 2022 OTA practices will be. There's a lot that we don't know with all of this stuff, so you can't go too crazy, at least not yet. Uh, But you also shouldn't be naive and be certain that there's nothing to see here, okay? Like, not off again, Ron having made a really big deal about wanting players to attend OTAs. Like, I can't emphasize that enough. Ron made it clear. He wanted people in attendance at OTAs, and so far, four prominent guys have no-showed OTA practices, which, yes, are voluntary. But Ron, at a day after the game Zoom press conference this past January 3rd, said, quote, one thing that we have to understand is just how important the offseason is for us. Hopefully, the COVID situation will be in control. Hopefully, it won't be a battle to get guys to be here end quote. Uh, I thought that that was very telling. Hopefully, it won't be a battle to get guys to be here. Well, one week into the Commander's 2022 OTA practices, it would appear that it may be a battle to get guys to be here. Uh, Let's see what happens next week and then the following week. Uh, Also, I want to mention some NFL roster stuff. Uh, The NFL on Thursday announced roster cutdown dates for this year, uh, August 16th, will be the cut down from 90 to 85. August 23rd will be the cut down to 80. August 30th will be the cut down to 53. Now, you're allowed to cut down to those numbers prior to the deadlines to get to those numbers, but those are the deadlines. The Commanders' three preseason games in the 2022 preseason are home to the Carolina Panthers Saturday afternoon, August 13th at 1. 
at the Kansas City Chiefs Saturday afternoon, August 20th at 4, and at the Baltimore Ravens Saturday afternoon, August 27th at 4. So the deadline for the cut down to 53 will take place three days after the Commanders' final preseason game. And then there, again, will be a lengthy gap between the end of the Commanders' preseason and the start of the Commanders' regular season. Uh, We have these gaps now with the reduction of the NFL preseason. The Commanders' preseason finale is at the Ravens on August 27th. The Commanders' regular season opener is home to the Jacksonville Jaguars on September 11th. So two-plus weeks between the end of the Commanders' 2022 preseason and the start of the Commanders' 2022 regular season. Also, we this week have had some pretty significant news regarding players being able to return from injured reserve. Uh, The NFL and the NFL Players Association have agreed on some new rules. The biggest one is this, a player designated for return from a team's reserve injured list or a team's reserve non-football injury slash illness list uh, now is eligible to come back after four games have elapsed since the date on which he was placed on the list. Previously, players were eligible to return after three games had elapsed. So keep that in mind. Uh, You go on IR, you now must miss at least four games, not three. Uh, Also, each NFL team now is allowed to use eight designations for players to return from the team's reserve injured list or the team's reserve non-football injury slash illness list. A player may be designated to return a maximum of two times in a season, but each designation will count against a team's eight permissible designations. Up next, our special guest, Commander's Insider, Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. Michael has covered the Virginia aspect of the Commander Stadium saga better than anybody else has. We'll make sense of a busy and confusing last four days in the saga and preview a big day in the saga coming up this Wednesday, June 1st. Uh, Also, I'll ask Michael for his take on whether we are, in fact, in the midst of the end of Dan Snyder as owner of the Commanders. Michael Phillips with a deep dive on the Commander's quest for a new stadium and more straight ahead. Well, we all want to be healthy, but it's not easy to eat healthy. And let's be honest, it's not cheap to eat healthy, especially with inflation right now. And so that's why you should try Factor. Factor is an affordable meal delivery plan that provides you with delicious and healthy food. Whether you're trying to get or stay lean or you're trying to put on muscle, Factor gets the job done and saves you hours per week in that you don't have to worry about food shopping, cooking, or doing dishes. Uh, Factor offers 30 meals per week. You can choose from a variety of new meals every week, so you'll never get bored. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. Yes, two minutes. You can't beat this. Trust me, I eat Factor meals. My favorites have included the Keto Chorizo Chili, the Chichimuri Pork Tenderloin, and the Santa Fe Beef Bowl. All of them delicious. And understand that Factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. You're going to love eating Factor meals and You can save $120 just by being a listener of this podcast. Here's what you do. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Yeah, you heard that right, $120 off. That's go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Give Factor a try. Eat well and save yourself time and money. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. You got to try Factor because fitness starts with food. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As is always the case, I thank you for listening to the Al Galdi podcast. If you have never rated the podcast, please consider doing that. Uh, If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, you can give the podcast a five-star rating. A five-star rating is very much appreciated. Also, if you have never written a review of the podcast, uh, please consider doing that. You can write a review of the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. The review does not have to be long. can be just a sentence or two saying that you like the podcast, but the ratings and the reviews help to make the podcast successful, and thank you for doing the ratings and the reviews. Well, it has been some week in the Commander's Stadium saga. It has felt like every five minutes there has been a new report or a new development. It was on Monday afternoon that this all started. We had a report that the Commanders had purchased 200 acres of land in Dumfries, Virginia, for $100 million. Uh, Then we, on Monday afternoon, got multiple reports that the land actually was in Woodbridge, Virginia. Then we, on Monday night, got multiple reports that the commanders hadn't actually purchased the land, but instead had signed an option to purchase agreement. Then we, on Wednesday night, had the major news that Virginia State Senator Chap Peterson, who is a Democrat who represents Central and Western Fairfax in the Virginia State Senate and who had been a supporter of Virginia money going to the commanders to build a new stadium and a surrounding area in Virginia, now has changed his mind and is anti a Virginia stadium funding plan for the commanders. There has been other stuff that has popped up as well, but we don't have four hours here to recap everything. But now all eyes are on this Wednesday, June 1st. Uh, That day is the deadline by which the Virginia State Senate needs to pass a commander's stadium funding plan if one is going to be approved this year. It is on June 1st that the Senate is going to approve a state budget. If there is an agreed-upon conference report for the stadium funding plan, then the plan will be voted on. 40 people would vote. And if the plan passes, then the plan will move to the Virginia House of Delegates. But if there is no agreed-upon conference report for the stadium funding plan, then the plan will die. And any Virginia stadium funding plan for the commanders would not happen until at least 2023, if a Virginia stadium funding plan for the commanders happens at all. Like I said, it has been some week in the commander stadium saga. Nobody has covered the Virginia aspect of the Commander Stadium saga better than the man who joins me now. Commander's Insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael P. R-T-D. Michael, I know that these last few days have been crazy for you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Absolutely. We got plenty plenty of ground to cover here. Changing by the minute, it feels like. Yeah, no doubt. Before we get to the specifics of what's going on in Virginia, just to take a step back, the Redskins began the process of finding a site for a new stadium all the way back in 2014. Here we are now, Memorial Day weekend 2022, and there still is no deal for a site for a new stadium for the team. Are you surprised that this stadium saga has gone on for as long as it has gone on for? I'm surprised by a number of elements. One was that Bruce Allen didn't get this done while he was here because, you know, and and look, this isn't going to be the Bruce Allen. He prays on him hour, obviously. We don't really do that around here. But he was super well connected politically. Um, You know, obviously the Allen family, big name in Virginia politics. Uh, The team certainly had more juice at the time, you know, coming off the Robert years. Um, and, And they were openly talking about starting to get this thing going. Um, but, you know, for a variety of reasons, most of which revolve around RFK not being made available to them, essentially, you know, they didn't cross the finish line with it. And yeah, you know, I, I, 2027's always been the goal just to start the new stadium as soon as possible. And, you know, it's, it's going to be really tight. They're, they're on a tight time frame to make that happen. 
Yeah, so this vote slash potential vote for this Wednesday, June 1st is looming. And I say vote slash potential vote because there's no guarantee that an actual vote will take place. But off the flip of Virginia State Senator Chat Peterson, is your sense that Peterson represents the majority of the Virginia State Senate? In other words, that his stance now is the majority stance. That is the, the $3 billion question coming into huh. next week. And so, I, you know, we... We, we have this Virginia Stadium bill, and, and you know, it, it sounds like it's going to be $350 million of state subsidies. Uh, you know, that, that's subject to change, but uh, it's going to come up for a vote next week is the current plan, June 1st. Uh, in the preliminary vote uh, earlier this year in, in February, uh, in the Virginia Senate, 40 members, 32 of them voted yes, and eight voted no. And, you know, that was considered a barometer of where everybody stood. This thing has broad bipartisan support. Now, from there, it has kind of slowly unraveled a bit. They, they knew when casting that vote, they weren't casting the final vote yet. So it's a little bit easier to support it. Obviously, Chap Peterson's jumped off the train. But, you know, this is, this is a project that was considered to have broad bipartisan support. Um, I think that the core elements of it do still, having professional sports in Virginia, having a big development project in Virginia. Um, but I think the thing that has changed is Dan Snyder's popularity level. Dan Snyder is weighing this project down by being associated with. And I think, you know, certainly as everybody keeps an eye on re-election, associating with Dan Snyder has become a political liability. So, you know, they're counting the votes. I, I still think they're there probably. Um, but, you know, it's one thing to be there in a preliminary vote. And it's another thing to be there when you're casting the real vote that could be used against you in a campaign. And just to be clear, the $350 million would be for the commanders to build a stadium anywhere in Virginia, correct? Sure. So the, the Virginia bill as written right now, and obviously, you know, they're going to huddle all weekend, tweak this thing, get it to a place where it's, it's got support before they cross the finish line here. The stadium bill as written says that the state is, is going to create three, the $350 million of support of bonds. And, and then there would be a, a panel selected to, you know, to decide how to spend it. But the team would have majority representation on the panel along with the state. Um, so, so essentially, the team would get to pick where in Virginia they end up. Uh, the, the state would not get final say on that. Although we know, of course, that through the zoning process, the land use process, all that, they could certainly exert influence on it. All right. Good information right there. Uh, so when it comes to where in Virginia a new commander stadium and surrounding area would be, as of just a few days ago, of course, Woodbridge, Virginia, certainly seemed like the leader in the clubhouse, even though the 200 acres of land haven't officially been purchased. Uh, there's only this option to purchase agreement. But you on Thursday morning broke news in reporting that the commanders have worked up plans for a stadium in Loudoun County on the silver line of the metro. Uh, that contrasts with Woodbridge, for which there would be no metro access. You did note that the commanders still are working to acquire the land in Loudoun County. So which Virginia site is more likely right now, the Woodbridge site or the Loudoun County site? I think everybody really likes the Loudoun County site. I think it's cool. It's on the metro. That's important. It's near a lot of corporate money, a lot of big money. Uh, you know, that's obviously very important to the success of the project. Um, I think it's got a lot going for it. Now, the downside is, you know, it's land near a metro. It's crazy expensive. There, there's not a lot of it out there. You know, Loudoun County land near these Silver Line metro stops. It's been talked about for a number of other development projects. A lot of developers want to get their hands on that land. And so it's going to cost you know, a lot more than the Woodbridge land costs. Say, you know, it, it, the Washington Business Journal report was that, that the team had offered double what they paid in Woodbridge, uh, you know, $200 million. And so, and so that, you know, that was declined. So you're talking about a steeper hill to climb here, a lot more construction costs. You're talking about filling in a, a rock quarry and securing it. Uh, it's going to be a really expensive project. And, and so I think if you think about, you know, that this is essentially a, a single funded effort. Dan Snyder owns 100% of the team right now. There are no partners. Unless he brings in a second business partner into this, it sure feels like Woodbridge is the more realistic of the two options right now. Putting cost aside, which site would be better, the Woodbridge site or the Loudoun County site? 
I don't see how you how you could pick anything other than the one that's on the Metro line. You know, I to to me it's an easy pick for Loudon. I I, I get the arguments for Woodbridge that that certainly that's an area that doesn't have you know big entertainment district. You know, doesn't have a lot going for it in terms of pro sports. Connects you to Fredericksburg, Richmond. You know, even down to Tidewater, a lot cleaner. Like there there are upsides there, but I think if you're looking at a, a you know real centerpiece stadium you know a, a, a jewel stadium for the region uh, i just think putting it near an international airport and on a metro line is always going to be more successful than putting it you know south of town where you have to drive a car to get there yeah it's, it's not that's not of course a, it, you know doesn't mean people wouldn't go there people find their way to arizona the cardinal stadium people find their way to the patriot stadium but when you think about iconic stadiums you certainly think about them being in urban environments we're discussing the Commander's search for a site for a new stadium with Commander's insider Michael Phillips of Richmond.com. So if on Wednesday the Virginia State Senate does not pass the stadium funding plan or does not even vote on the stadium funding plan, uh, then what for the Commander's in their search for a site for a new stadium? Well, your, your overwhelming favorite at that moment would become the FedEx site in Maryland. That you know, the team has said, and I certainly believe them, that if Virginia is not going to lend state support, they're not going to build a stadium in Virginia. They they could, of course, you know, anybody can you know buy land and, and do whatever they want with it, and, and you know that that's still in the realm of possibility. But it's hard to imagine the league signing off on a project or the team signing off on a project that doesn't have explicit support of the state it's in. Uh, you know, and RFK remains just an absolute long shot because you're dealing with the federal government to get there. Uh, to me, uh, that that just leaves Maryland, and, and right now Maryland's offer on the table is specifically for that FedEx site in Landover. So, I, if you're down to one site, you're down to one site. Your option is to build or not build at that point. Regarding paying. For this new Commander Stadium and surrounding area, Dan Snyder obviously wants money from a government to help fund the project, but does he need money from a government to fund the project, or could he and the NFL finance the project if they had to? Yeah, that's a big question looming over everything. So, you know, we'll talk about the things that are publicly known here. So it's a $3 billion project, the way they've drawn it up. $1 billion of that is the stadium. So you set aside the other $2 billion. You know, you can bring in real estate partners, hotel partners, entertainment partners to do that. You always want more of your skin in the game because that's more profit down the line. But you can bring in other money to accomplish that other $2 billion. So you've just got the stadium itself, that billion, and Dan Snyder I took out a loan from the league to buy out his minority partners a couple of years ago. And so, you know, I, I think we all assumed at the time, you know, veering away from reporting now into assumption that, that he would then resell that share of the team to somebody else to reliquidize, recapitalize. And then that would become the money that would be used on the stadium project or on other endeavors or whatever. But, you know, even if you're talking about the mega rich, Dan Snyder's very rich. He owns the yacht, owns the jet, all those things. They don't just have billion and a half dollar checks sitting around. You know, they, they're relying on loans and capital and things like that. And that's where the Dan Snyder brand is really working against him right now. You think about, you know, is the NFL going to let him take out a loan, knowing that you know, if, if, if you come to a repossessing situation, that that's incredibly bad for the league and potentially very damaging there. Would the league lend him more money, knowing what hot water he's been in and all these reports about the other owners growing dissatisfied? I think I think the access to that money is a major question here and a big part of why you're seeing this late push. And Ron Rivera today tweeting about, you know, Virginia and Jack Del Rio's out there, man. They're, they're putting on the push, uh, you know, and, and there's good reason for that. This is an important vote for them. Yeah. <laughs> That Ron Rivera tweet on Thursday said a lot. Ron doesn't tweet about Commander's News often, but he on Thursday morning, for those of you who missed it, tweeted the following about a photo of a rendering of a new Commander's headquarters. Quote, saw the designs of our new command post, our new team headquarters complete with meeting spaces, practice fields, and training facility. Looks amazing. Proud of what we are building. End quote. Uh, there clearly was a strategy behind Ron doing that. Uh, so the statement that Chap Peterson put out on Wednesday night included two really incendiary items. Him saying 
that he doesn't have confidence in the commanders, quote, as a viable NFL franchise, end quote, and him saying that he doesn't think that the commanders, quote, have the community support to survive, end quote. I thought the chap was being overly dramatic with what he said, but what say you? Man, I think we got to take a 10,000-foot view of this and say this. There's, there's a generation of Washington Redskins fans, and they're Chap Peterson's age, and a lot of them fit that, that demographic profile, and they love the Washington Redskins. So they live and die with it, and they're feeling really, really disassociated at the moment. They're feeling like the team doesn't represent what they love about it. They're feeling disenfranchised by the team, and, and they're really losing them as the fans. And then you look at the next generation. So I'm talking about, you know, people who are, are kind of, you know, maybe our age or younger, you know, people in their 20s in D.C. right now, in their early 30s, who don't have any great memories of the Washington Redskins. You know, they, they just didn't grow up in a winning era. They didn't grow up going to the games. Or, you know, they, they don't remember Riga or anything like that. And, and, you know, that's a lost generation. You think about kids in high school right now, they're, they're not. Commanders fans are not Redskins fans. They're they're not fans of the team because they've just kind of had nothing to hang their hat on for a long time. So you got that lost generation. So as a team, you got to make this business decision: do we try to cling to the fans we used to have and serve that market because that's that's a market that exists? Do you try to chase this lost generation, or do you, do you reboot and just say it's a fresh identity, it's a fresh space? We're going to create something new here and hope people uh, hope people respond to it. I don't know what the right answer is. I think it's probably closer to C than any of the others, though. I, I, I think it's it's to the point now where you know that generation of Redskins fans just doesn't feel like they're being represented here, and, and so you got to start something new. You say this though, pro sports man, you're always one year away from reclaiming a fan base. You know, if I told you ten years ago, you know, Capitals would be the hottest thing in town for a while. Yeah, that that would have felt a little outlandish, maybe 15, 20 years ago, twenty years ago. Now. Things come and go, trends come and go. It's the NFL. It's the most popular product in this country in sports. I wouldn't bet against them finding a way to do it. They've got a big challenge on their hands. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that Chat Peterson, A, is underestimating the power and popularity of the NFL, and B, is underestimating the sleeping giant that is the commander's fan base and this area if the team truly becomes good again. But of course, That's a giant if, and the concerns that Chap Peterson put forward, it's not like they are illegitimate concerns. I mean, I definitely understand where he's coming from. Final question, uh, you mentioned Dan Snyder and the possibility that he is on thin ice as owner of the team with other NFL owners like never before. What do you make of that? Do you think that we are seeing the end of Dan as owner of the team, or do you think that Dan isn't going anywhere? I remain a firm believer that NFL owners will never vote to kick out a fellow NFL owner. I don't think that means that he's there forever. I think there's other levers that can be pulled. I think they will investigate all possible outlets. But I, I'm pessimistic on that one. I, I just don't think the owners would ever. You talk about you know this being a public vote next week in Virginia. That's a public vote you take as the owners. I don't think they would ever do it. I think it would just take far, far too much in discovery that I don't think we're going to discover here in this second investigation. Yeah, (laughs) I hear you on that. Michael Phillips, Commander's Insider, Richmond.com. Michael, excellent work on this stadium stuff. All the best to you. Absolutely. Take care, Al. Well, don't look now, but for the first time in nearly a month, The Nationals have won consecutive games. The Nats' longest winning streak this season is two games. Yes, two games. Uh, The Nats last had won two consecutive games on May 1st and 3rd. The game on May 3rd was a win in Game 1 of a series at the Colorado Rockies. Well, wouldn't you know it, the Nats' win on Thursday night was a win in Game 1 of a series against the Colorado Rockies. A 7-3 win over the Rockies at Nationals Park in Game 1 of a four-game series. And that's manager Davey Martinez. The boys have themselves a winning streak for the first time in nearly a month. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir. Proud of the boys. Two consecutive victories for the Nats 
here right now. Uh, the Nats this season now 16-30, and 30, and if the Nats win three of the team's next four games, the Nats will be, wait for it, 19 and 31. There you go. Uh, you know what that means. Good offense by the Nats on Thursday night. Uh, they actually hit for some power. Now, they didn't hit any home runs. The Nats this season basically never hit home runs, but the Nats on Thursday night did have nine hits, four of which were extra base hits. The Nats had a triple and three doubles to go with five singles. Uh, the Nats on Thursday night worked five walks. That was good. And the Nats on Thursday night went four for 10 with runners in scoring position. That was good. But I'll tell you what stuck out to me more than anything with the Nats offense on Thursday night. Four first inning runs. As bad as the Nats offense has been this season, a positive for the Nats offense this season has been the frequency with which the Nats have scored in the first innings of games. Now, too often, the Nats haven't done much more the rest of those games, but the Nats on Thursday night, four runs in the bottom of the first. The Nats this season now have totaled 180 runs. Now, that's not some great run total for the Nats over their 46 games, but 35 of the Nats' 180 runs this season have been first-inning runs. 19.4% of the Nats' runs this season have been first-inning runs. That's good. That's actually really good. Uh, the biggest blow in the Nats' four-run first on Thursday night was a Yadiel Hernandez went-out two-run double to the right center field gap for a 4 nothing Nats lead. Uh, Yadiel on Thursday night as an Nats starting left fielder and number six batter, one for three with that two-run double. Also drew a walk. Uh, Yadiel in the bottom of the third drew a one-out six-pitch walk despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Also with a big double in that Nats four-run first on Thursday night was Josh Bell as finally Josh Bell has ended his extra base hit drought. Uh, Bell on Thursday night as an at starting first baseman and number five batter, one for three with an RBI double and an RBI sack fly. Bell in the Nats four-run first, a first pitch RBI double off the center field wall for a 2 nothing Nats lead. That was a big boy double by Josh Bell. That also was his first extra base hit since May 7th, if you can believe that. Thursday was May 26th. Bell had not hit an extra base hit since May 7th. He had really cooled off since his white-hot start to the season, but Bell came through in that Nats four-run first, and then Bell in the Nats one-run seventh had an RBI sack fly on an 0-2 pitch for a 6-3 Nats lead. Uh, Nelson Cruz on Thursday night had a key hit in the four-run first. He is a Nats starting DH, and number four batter went one for three with an RBI single and a walk. Cruz in the Nats four-run first, a one-out RBI single, through the left side of the infield for a 1-0 Nats lead. Cruz in the Nats, one run seventh, drew a one-out four-pitch walk to load the bases. The Nats got contributions from a lot of guys on Thursday night. Cesar Hernandez as the Nats starting second baseman at number one batter, two for four with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. Hernandez in that Nats, four-run first, drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. Hernandez in the Nats, one-run fourth, a one-out RBI double off the right field wall on a hit-and-run for a 5-3 Nats lead, and Hernandez in the Nats, one run seventh, a leadoff single on a fly ball into no man's land in shallow right center field. D. Strange Gordon on Thursday night again was an Nats starting shortstop. We're seeing more and more of D. Strange Gordon and less and less of Alcides Escobar. Uh, Strange Gordon was an Nats number eight batter, two for four with a triple and a single. Uh, now, he did commit a fielding error in the top of the ninth, but Strange Gordon in that Nats one run fourth, a leadoff opposite field single through the left side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch, and Strange Gordon in a Nats one run eighth had a one-out triple to the right center field gap. Now, speaking of that one run eighth, Victor Robles on Thursday night, he was an Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter, one for four. He had an RBI bunt single in that Nats one-run eighth. A one-out first pitch RBI bunt single toward first base on a safety squeeze for a 7-3 Nats lead. Now, the throw home wasn't the greatest, but still, this was another instance of Victor Robles getting a hit with a bunt this season. Robles has not done much well offensively this season, but he is bunting well. He's had a lot of good bunts. D-Strange Gordon has uh, shown inability to bunt as well. Hey, the Nats don't hit homers, but they do bunt well, <laughs> so we can give them that. Uh, speaking of bunting, I did not like K-Bert Ruiz on Thursday night in that Nats one-run seventh, getting what was officially uh, credited as a sacrifice bunt, although it looked like he was bunting for a hit, but whatever the case, 
Uh, don't bunt. Dude, you can hit. Let's see Cape Ruiz hit. Uh, he on Thursday night as an ad starting catcher, a number two batter, one for four with a single. He and the Nats four-run first had a single to right field. Now, a negative in terms of Nats position players on Thursday night was Juan Soto. He remains in this funk. Uh, Soto on Thursday night as the Nats starting right fielder and number three batter, 0 for 3 with a walk, so he went hitless. Uh, He also had another rough moment in right field. I mean, it was good to see him draw a walk. Okay, Soto does draw walks in the Nats, one run seventh through a one-out four-pitch walk. But like I said, no hits and another tough defensive moment. Soto in a Rockies two-run third uh, failed to get a baseball that was rolling his way. Uh, So Patrick Corbin in that Rockies two-run third gave up a one-out first pitch. RBI triple to Charlie Blackman to right field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-2. Soto on the play whiffed in a backhanded attempt to get the ball as it rolled near the right field corner. Juan Soto has been guilty of way too much sloppiness so far this season. You see, what's going on with Juan Soto right now, it's not just that he's slumping at the plate. He's slumping in the field. He's had some bad defensive moments, and he's slumping on the base paths. He's had some bad moments on the base paths, you know, getting picked off, things like that. Not good. Soto's better than this. We know he's better than this, and he'll come out of this. I mean, we all know that, Uh, but this is about the worst that we've seen of Juan Soto so far in his major league career. I can't remember him being like this for a prolonged period of time as he has been here these last few weeks. Uh, Patrick Corbin, was an ad starting pitcher on Thursday night, just made mention of him, and he was decent. Uh, He certainly wasn't great, but he was a lot better than he had been over his uh, two previous starts. So Patrick Corbin, prior to Thursday night, had been quite bad in each of his previous two outings. An 8-0 loss to the Houston Astros at Nationals Park on May 15th, five runs in six innings. He began his outing with four scoreless innings, but then gave up five runs over the fifth, sixth, and seventh innings. And then Corbin in a 5-1 loss at the Milwaukee Brewers this past Saturday night, five runs in five innings. He's having a really bad season. Came into the game, Corbin did, with an ERA this season of 660. But Corbin on Thursday night, like I said, decent. Uh, Three runs in six into third innings. So he pitched into the seventh inning. He did give up seven hits, a triple, two doubles, and four singles. He issued two walks and a wild pitch. He only recorded three strikeouts. He threw 80 pitches. That was it. But uh, Davey Martinez pulled Corbin after six into third innings. Corbin in the top of the second allowed a run. He gave up a leadoff double to Brendan Rodgers to left field. Uh, Corbin issued a one-out wild pitch, and then Corbin gave up a one-out RBI infield single to Jose Iglesias on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats' lead to 4-1. And then Corbin in the top of the third gave up two runs. He issued a one-out nine-pitch walk of Yonatan Daza. Corbin gave up that one-out first pitch RBI triple to Charlie Blackman to right field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-2. And then Corbin gave up a run on a first pitch RBI grounded by C.J. Crone to cut the Nats' lead to 4-3. So the Patrick Corbin 2022 ERA down to 6-30. There you go. Uh, The most interesting thing, though, to me, from a Nats pitching perspective on Thursday night was how Davey Martinez handled his bullpen. So three Nats relievers in this 7-3 win over the Rockies at Nationals Park on Thursday night combined for two and two-thirds scoreless innings. Uh, Victor Arano came into the game in the top of the seventh with one out, a runner on first, and the Nats leading 5-3. Arano did give up a single, but he then induced a 6-4-3 double play for the second and third outs. And then we got what we got in the top of the eighth. So the Nats' usual eighth inning guy, when leading anyway, is Kyle Finnegan. But Finnegan on Thursday night was unavailable due to having pitched the previous two days. And so with Finnegan unavailable and the Rockies' numbers three, four, and five batters due up, Davey did what I love to see a manager do. He deployed his ace reliever, in a non-ninth inning, Davey Martinez had his quote-unquote closer, Tanner Rainey, work the top of the eighth, and Rainey delivered. He tossed a perfect top of the eighth, including striking out Ryan McMahon on five pitches for the third out. Now, look, this isn't new, okay? For a while now, analytically inclined managers have been doing this. You take your ace reliever and you deploy him in a high-leverage spot, and there's no question, this was a high-leverage spot. 
The Nats were nursing a three-run lead. The score was 6-3 at the time. The heart of the Rockies lineup was coming up. The Rockies numbers three, four, and five batters were coming up, and Davey deployed his ace reliever in that spot. I love seeing that, and I loved even more Tanner Rainey delivering. And then Davey went with Steve Ciszek for the top of the ninth, and Ciszek tossed a scoreless top of the ninth inning. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on how he handled his bullpen on Thursday night, including the deployment of Tanner Rainey in that top of the eighth to face the heart of the Rockies lineup. Yes, uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, we talked to her. I talked to Randy before the game, gave him a heads up that, you know, if the, situa- uh, the situation arises, he'll, he'll pitch uh, that bulk of the guys there. And then um, um, I think I thought we matched up really well with C-Check at the bottom. Yeah, I really liked how Davey Martinez handled his bullpen on Thursday night. I did not like, though, what we got from Joe Ross on Thursday afternoon. So it is looking like Joe Ross is going to need a second Tommy John surgery. That's not definite, uh, but Ross on Tuesday night in pitching for A Harrisburg in the first start of his minor league rehab assignment felt right elbow discomfort. Uh, he underwent an MRI exam, and he on Thursday afternoon revealed to reporters that the MRI exam revealed, as he put it, a little bit more of a sprain than he had had in his previous MRIs. Uh, Ross was to undergo more testing. So like I said, nothing is certain in terms of him definitely needing a second Tommy John surgery. But more and more, it looks like he will need a second Tommy John surgery. Uh, Ross underwent his first Tommy John surgery in July 2017, and he just has been hurt a bunch for years now. I mean, basically, since the end of the 2016 season, it has been one injury after another for Joe Ross. He this past March 7th underwent arthroscopic surgery to remove a bone spur in his right elbow. That's what he was coming back from in making this initial minor league rehab assignment start on Tuesday night. Uh, But also looming over Joe Ross has been the prospect of potentially needing a second Tommy John surgery. The Nats last August 15th placed Ross on the 10-day injured list with a partial tear of his right UCL, and he ended up not pitching for the rest of the season. So he has been banged up a lot for years now. Uh, This season is Ross's age 29 season and is the final season of team control for him. The timing of all of this really could not be worse for Joe Ross when you think about where he is at in his career. This was a big contract season for Joe Ross, and he almost certainly is going to end up not pitching at all at the major league level this season. So certainly wish Joe Ross the best. Game two for the Nats against the Rockies at Nationals Park is on Friday night at 7.05. Weather permitting, uh, there is a good bit of rain in the Washington, D.C. area forecast for Friday. Aaron Sanchez is scheduled to be the Nats starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So no show for Monday, which is Memorial Day. I'll be back with you with a show for Tuesday, what will be episode 325. Between now and Tuesday, who the heck knows what will have come up with the commanders, the Dan Snyder situation, the stadium situation, maybe actual football news. Okay, imagine that. But whatever happens, I will discuss it on Tuesday's show. Also on Tuesday's show, lots of Nationals and Orioles conversation. The Nats will play the remaining three games of a four-game series against the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park Friday through Sunday. And then the Nats on Monday night will begin a three-game series at the New York Mets. Uh, That series, by the way, will begin a 10-game road trip for the Nats. The O's will play five games at the Boston Red Sox over four days, Friday through Monday, including a doubleheader on Saturday. So have a great rest of your Friday. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Coach Joe Gibbs, congratulations, owner Jack Ken Cook. I know you have one thing to say to the Redskins fans. It's simply this, that this magnificent team of yours has the privilege of playing for what, in my opinion, are the finest fans, not just in America, but on the face of this earth. Thank you, you marvelous Washington fans.